Well, good morning again. Uh, this morning, we are going to take a, a break from our normal consecutive exposition of the Gospel of Luke um, to address an issue that's likely on many of your minds, uh, as you've no doubt been watching the news and are aware of the war in Israel and uh, Hamas's brutal attacks against Israel and uh, just the depravity we've witnessed, uh, many of the images that some of you may have seen. And uh, so I thought it would be good for us to just pull off to the side of the road and talk about the Bible's um, perspective on Israel as far as the storyline of Scripture and uh, look at those issues. So that's, that's my intent this morning. And uh, so join with me in a word of prayer as we uh, endeavor to look at this uh, topic in Scripture. Father, we come before you and we would ask for your help as we seek to look at uh, quite a, a lot of Scripture as it uh, addresses these matters. Um, Lord, our hearts lament uh, with um, those who've lost their lives and uh, just these attacks, and um, it grieves us to see these things. And, and yet, Lord, we in these times need all the more perspective from your word uh, as to um, your plans, as to history, as to a right worldview and perspective. And so we ask you would grant that to us and uh, you would help us to be better informed on how to pray uh, for these things and other things in our world. And so we thank you, Lord, that uh, you have a plan and that you are working that out in history and that we get to play a role in that as the church and um, to witness and testify to the person and work of Christ. And so, Lord, give us just that much more perspective on your word and appreciation for uh, the scriptures and its relevancy to every issue in our lives and even to this one here that we address today. Uh, give us attentive hearts, Lord, and guide us in our study of the scriptures that there might be clarity, that we might not be lost in the weeds, but uh, just have a, a clear sense of your, your word's teaching. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, could you defend the reliability of the Bible with only one word? To defend the Bible's reliability and truthfulness with one word. This is the question asked to the chaplain of Frederick II, the king of Prussia, from 1740 to 1786. The king had become skeptical about Christianity, and uh, maybe because of the French atheist Voltaire, and so he brought his chaplain in, and he asked him this very question. If your Bible is really true, it ought to be capable of very easy proof. So often when I have asked the proof of the inspiration of the Bible, I have been given some large tome that I have neither the time nor desire to read. If your Bible is really from God, you should be able to demonstrate the fact simply Give me proof for the inspiration of the Bible in a word. The chaplain replied, Your Majesty, it is possible for me to answer your, your request literally. I can give you the proof you ask for in one word. He was amazed at this response and excited and intrigued to hear what this one word would be. What is this magic word that carries such a weight or proof, he asked. 
chaplain looked at Frederick and said the word Israel. And the king was silent. Israel's miraculous preservation through the ages is no doubt an assured sign of the faithfulness of God and his plans to ultimately restore this people. The existence of Israel alone is evidence that the Bible is true. It is a powerful testimony to that. Do you know any Hittites? You know, do you know any Jebusites? <laughs> do you know any Girgashites? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> uh, but we do know Israelites, and that is no uh, coincidence. Also, it boggles the mind to see uh, the hatred for the Jews throughout history. No other nation in history has been hated like the Jews have been hated. And the explanation is not a natural one. It is a supernatural explanation. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis 3.15. And this ultimate cosmic battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And from the beginning, Satan has sought to eradicate the plan of God to bring about the Messiah into the world for the redemption of not only Israel, but all of the nations, all of the elect of God. And so, since God's plans um, get further clarified as you move through the book of Genesis and you realize that this seed of the woman, this savior of humanity, is going to come through a particular nation Satan has sought to eradicate this nation throughout history to thwart the plans of God. Now, we, there were so many passages I just wanted to like tee off on and go. And Revelation 12 is one of those. It's, it's very symbolic in many ways, but it's a very clear passage to see the satanic opposition to the woman who is Israel throughout her history and even into the future from our perspective. We don't have time to go there, though. You can look at it later. <laughs> But one thing that you see is that through history, there have really been, there are seven major nations through history, world powers, that have, uh, that have sought to eradicate the Jews, starting with Egypt and Pharaoh seeking to destroy Israel. And you see that with the babies in chapter one as they seek to eradicate them, throw them throwing them into the Nile. And God delivers Moses from that and leads his people out of Egypt. Uh, you see then uh, the Assyrians and King Sennacherib as he seeks to eradicate the Jews as well, thwarted again by the angel of Yahweh. And then you see Babylon rise and you have Nebuchadnezzar who seeks as well to do the same. Following that, you have uh, Artaxerxes uh, or, or Ahasuerus uh, who is also known as Xerxes and his um, right-hand man Haman, who seeks to eradicate the Jews under, under Persian rule. After that, Greece comes on the scene, and you have a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who comes and seeks to, once again, eradicate the Jews. Following that, you have Rome come on the scene, and Caesar, and Caesar, of course, is represented in multiple Caesars, and the, Rome's attempt to eradicate them. You think of Herod in the beginning of the gospel, seeking to uh, destroy the babies and, and, and strike at the, the line of the Messiah, or Messiah's birth, and stop that. Satan is behind all these. And then the Bible actually tells us there is another world kingdom that will come on the scene, a, a revived Roman Empire, according to the book of Daniel and Revelation, 
that we see there's an ultimate another figure of this world empire uh, that goes by many titles in Scripture. We often think about him as the Antichrist who will seek to, once again, eradicate Israel in the future. So you just see the theme coming over and over and over and over again. And then even within that, uh, smaller, well, other uh, attempts, I don't want to say smaller, but other attempts to, to go after uh, Israel and the Jews. And of course, this fits into a biblical worldview, seeing that this is the very nation that God has sought to bring the Messiah onto the scene and God has plans for them as well. Now, in light of the events going on in Israel right now, as no doubt our, our minds go to what the Bible says. I mean, you can't read hardly any of the Bible th- without the lens of the people of Israel, right? The Bible is virtually written by uh, all Jews. Uh, it is, um, you can't read the Old Testament. In fact, you, you know everything you know about the God of the Bible via the stories of Israel, right? It comes to us in that context. And so it, it, is, it is pertinent to us. No doubt our minds go in many directions. And there's a lot of ways that we could address this subject this morning. I mean, there's no way we could possibly be comprehensive this morning. And there's a lot of things you could talk about. You could talk about the, the evils and the deception of false religion, of all false religion, but in particular, you think about the religion of Islam and, and radical Islam and just the utter hatred for that and the corruptness of that. Uh, you see the reality of depravity and evil on an incredible scale. Seeing these images, seeing uh, Hamas attack families, women, children, babies, uh, elderly, and taking them hostage and many other things. You can think about the way the future relates to biblical eschatology and these matters as well. Um, you could see as well the need for repentance, right? Jesus talks about this in Luke 13 as moral atrocities and natural atrocities take, or natural evil takes place. And he says the message for that is that all of these people who died were going to die at some point. And the message is that everyone needs to repent so that they may not perish. That was Jesus' message. You could talk about that. But what I want us to do is to really just sketch uh, the history of Israel from the past to the present to the future so that we have some perspective on these things and can better pray and better think about the world around us. And so that's what we want to do. In fact, Paul does that very thing in Romans 9 to 11. Uh, because the question is on the Romans' minds, okay, God made these unconditional promises to a people, Israel, what hope do we have, because they're by and large not believing the gospel, what hope do we have that God is going to keep his unconditional promises to us? And so Paul addresses that, and he speaks in Romans 9 about Israel's past election, and then in chapter 10, he speaks to Israel's present rejection of the gospel, and then in chapter 11, he speaks to Israel's future restoration. And so Paul is giving us really a biblical theology of Israel in the book of Romans. And if you actually just look at Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, verse 1, he asks this pivotal question. Romans 11, 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? In context, he's talking about Israel. And he says, by no means. He goes on to say, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He goes on to explain God's future plans for Israel. He also speaks in chapter 9, verse 4, of the great privileges that have been given to them. In verse, nine of chapter, or verse 4 of chapter 9, he says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. Notice he says, 
presently, right? Present tense. They belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so, you cannot have a biblical theology without having a biblical theology of Israel. One other passage in Romans 11, verse 29, Romans eleven twenty-nine, we read this. Paul says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, if God makes unconditional promises to a people, then he will for sure fulfill them. Listen to God's commitment to his people in the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 36. Or sorry, verse 35. Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares Yahweh, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. He, he ties this to the celestial bodies. Chapter 33, verse 19 He says, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah. Thus says Yahweh, if you can break my covenant with the day, my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not, not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. My covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying, Yahweh has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus, uh, thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says Yahweh, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I, have, I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. So the Bible, these are just samples. Um, this morning as we see what, how the Old and the New Testament writers view um, Israel. Now, this, what I want to do this morning is give us a flyover uh, survey of biblical theology of Israel. We're going to have to leave a lot out uh, to get this plane up in the air. You know, we've got to get, we, we got to meet weight, right? We've we got to put a lot of things out if we're going to take this plane off and, and, and make it up in the air. So we have to leave a lot of things behind. But we want to give you the essential, uh, really, trajectory um, of the scriptures on these, on these matters. And uh, no doubt there will be questions in your mind. So come talk to me, and I would love to interact. It'd be great if we could have just like a, an hour Q&A after this, you know, but we don't have that time and luxury, but I will stay for an hour and talk to you if you'd like. <laughs> so uh, what we want to do, though, is look at some categories. And uh, don't, don't fear not. Fear not. You have little faith. We have 10 categories to look at about Israel. So some of these will go faster than others, all right? So this is like Aaron's... Uh, calf, you know, I just, I just sat down. It was Thursday, actually, and I was like thinking through these and, uh, and trying to categorize uh, this message for us, and, and here's what I came up with. I hope it's helpful for you. Okay, so first we want to begin with the covenants with Israel. The covenants with Israel. 
We begin in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. I hope you have fast fingers this morning. We're going to be all over the place from Genesis to Revelation. So Genesis 12, we have this covenant made with Abraham. And just prior to this, we have Genesis 10 and 11, which is the Tower of Babel and the Table of Nations. You have all these nations who really come together to rebel in single purpose against God and to make a name for themselves. So in response to that, God scatters the peoples and, and, and puts various languages and confuses the languages, spreads them out. But he makes a name for Abraham. So they sought to make a name for themselves, and he's going to make a name great for Abraham. So look at verses 1 to 3. Now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Now, what we see here is the, the beginnings of this covenant that is made, that's made with Abraham and has three essential features to it that we often say, LSB, right? Land, seed, and blessing. Those are the three uh, features. Now, what's, what's special about this covenant is that we might call it a unilateral covenant or an unconditional covenant. What we mean by that is that God promises to do these things Really regardless, uh, he puts Abraham to sleep and then walks through these animals split in half, like walking through this middle aisle here with animals on both sides to signify, if I break my part of the covenant, may I be like these animals that have been killed. And he puts Abraham to sleep to say, I'm going to do this, Abraham, regardless of you. I'm going to fulfill this. Okay, so this is unconditional or unilateral. God is going to do it himself. He's going to see that it happens, right? That's important because later in Israel's history then, God is going to make another covenant with Israel. After they've been established and they are um, brought out of Egypt in the Exodus through Moses and they're at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and they, uh, this covenant is given to them. And we call it the Mosaic Covenant because you know, Moses is kind of uh, receiving the, the, the law and giving it to the people. Or we call it the Sinaitic Covenant because it's at Sinai that they receive it, Mount Sinai. And it's really... Um, it has different features than the Abrahamic. It is what we might call a conditional covenant. Part of this covenant is that Israel has responsibilities to fulfill related to this covenant, that if they do them, they have blessings that come, and if they fail to meet those, they have curses that come. And so you see that in the scriptures. Now, what happens, the, the relationship between these two is that the Mosaic covenant then becomes like an administrative covenant over the Abrahamic covenant. So it kind of regulates the Abrahamic covenant. Now that's interesting because you, now you have this interesting dynamic where you have God guaranteeing that he's going to bring about the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, but now you have these conditions of the Mosaic covenant that Israel must fulfill. And so how is that going to work? How's God going to absolutely make it happen? But now there's things that Israel has to do that is linked to that, and that is really the storyline of Scripture, right? So you have that. Even in Deuteronomy, which is really a reiteration of the Mosaic law, it is Israel's constitution, if you will, it already realizes the problem. Moses says, God has not given you a heart to obey. You need a circumcised heart, he says, but then he'll later say in the book, but God has yet to give you that circumcised heart. And it actually predicts that in the future he will give them that circumcised heart so that they will be able to obey him and fulfill the law. So you see here, um, just by way of just a little footnote, 
the law was never given for Israel to earn salvation. They were already saved. They were already delivered out of Egypt. Now this is how you're to live in relationship with God in an ongoing way. So uh, later though, God would give them another covenant and it was the Davidic covenant. This is in 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. And this is a promise to David that he would set, God would set one of David's descendants on his throne and he would be on the throne of David forever, Okay. So th- this is the idea. There was this descendant who would come and, and bring about, and, and really the Davidic covenant is tied to all the other covenants. It, the one who can fulfill the Davidic covenant, the right man can bring about all of the other promises and fulfill them. He will bring about this new covenant, which will be better than the Mosaic because it has batteries included, right? Think about the Mosaic covenant. It's like, here's all the stuff but there's no batteries included. Don't you hate that at Christmas? You get a present and there's no batteries included. The new covenant is a covenant that comes batteries included so that Israel has within them uh, God's spirit indwelling them, enabling them a new heart, new spirit within them to do what God called them to do. So these are the covenants. And this is why we already read in Romans 9, 4 to 5, to them are the covenants, plural, of promise. So even Paul thinks about the covenants in the plural. He doesn't see them as like one covenant, uh, but really as multiple covenants given, yes, related to one another, but able to be distinguished. And so to them belong the covenants of promise. And this really just outlines for us in a big picture the, the place that they have in history that they are given these covenants. And so it is in the, the context of these covenants that assures us that God is not done with Israel. God is not done with them. So these are the covenants of Israel. Second, the curse of Israel. The curse of Israel. Going back to the Mosaic covenant, built into that are a number of warnings or curses if Israel disobeys the covenant. I'll just give you an example of this. Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26. You can even see in your headings, blessings for obedience, punishment for disobedience. And if you look at verse 38 of Leviticus 26, we read this. Verse 38, and you shall perish among the nations. So he's saying, if you're disobedient in an ongoing way, you shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity. And also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery, that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. So here, early, very early in Scripture, Already, God is telling us kind of the trajectory of history. He's saying, hey, uh, Israel, you're going to disobey and you're going to be scattered among the nations. But if you respond in repentance, then God will remember and bring you back, restore you. And these blessings and cursings are found primarily, we think, in the book of Deuteronomy in chapters 27 and 28, where there's this, this long list of the blessings for obedience for Israel and the curses for disobedience. And we see those curses come upon them in history because of their failure. If you read the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles, you see how this is happening. And the prophets are like covenant cops. And they're saying like, hey, 
This is what the covenant said. This is why you're not getting any rain on your land. This is why your crops are not producing because God said that's what would happen if you didn't obey. And so that's what you see. Now turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter four. This passage is incredible. Really what Deuteronomy four does in verses 25 to 31 is it essentially gives us a basic overview of all of Israel's history before they ever enter the land. I mean all of Israel's history, like to the end of history. And, and it's very simple. It's very basic. It doesn't fill in the how this will all happen. It just tells you the what. Like what is going to happen? And then later scripture are going to fill in. This is the basic framework that Moses gives in the book of Deuteronomy. And just think about how early this is. This is the first five books of the Bible. And he's already saying, here's the history of Israel. I'm going to lay it out for you. Very basic. And so this is really easy to get. Okay. So chapter four, verse, uh, let's see here. <clears throat> verse 25. It says, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, now they haven't even gone into the land yet, okay? And if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of Yahweh or God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where Yahweh will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Now, just pause for a second. They haven't, they're on the plains of Moab. They're about to enter the land. They're about to do the conquest under Joshua. They haven't even entered the land. And God is, Moses is already saying to them, hey, you guys are going to go in exile. That's a long way off. And he's also talking to them like you. I mean, this is a future generation, but that's actually important for later that he's just going to speak to them corporately as a nation, even though they're not going to go into exile because they're much later generations are, but he's saying, Israel as a whole, this is your history. But then notice what he says, verse 29. But from there, what? From exile, from the state of exile, you will seek Yahweh your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, notice latter days language, that becomes significant later in scripture. In the latter days, you will return to Yahweh your God and obey his voice. For Yahweh your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So here it is. Here's the timeline. Now, you don't know how this is going to happen yet in history, but Moses is saying, here's the, here's the timeline. You just you basically chart it out where Israel's going to go into the land. Later, they're going to be disobedient and they're going to go into exile and then even farther from that, in the latter days, they're going to return to Yahweh as a whole, and he will forgive them. And it's actually, in this latter time, it's actually called this time of tribulation. So already you're setting up for what the future holds. Truly incredible passage. Now, more is going to get filled in, but that's the basic structure. If Israel fails to obey the Lord per the covenant, they will face the curses of the covenant. And this has happened to them back in history. This is what leads to the next point, which is the captivity of Israel, right? So this is what God promises. This is exactly what happens. God is faithful. The captivity of Israel. Just as God said, what happened, both the north, northern 10 tribes, so there's a split in the north and south, right? Under Rehoboam, after Solomon, 10 tribes in the north, two in the south, 
And in the north, they uh, first go into captivity or exile, we might say, under the Assyrians in 722 BC. Right? They're, taken a, they're taken in exile. Then there's warnings to say, don't be like Israel to Judah, but they are like Israel. And they also go into captivity through the next superpower, the Babylonians. And they're taken in like three stages of deportation, culminating in the last one in 586 BC, where they destroy the temple and they exile uh, the people completely. So you have them going into exile. And yet even in that, there's still hope At the end of both Chronicles and Kings, they both show that God still has a relationship with his people, he still loves his people, and he still has a commitment to fulfill the Davidic covenant. There's still going to be one on the throne. We don't have time to look there, but I don't know if you like Marvel movies, you've seen Marvel movies, the young people maybe have, and uh, the Marvel movies had this this common uh, practice. After the movie was over and the credits ran, they had a post-credit scene. Sometimes they had two post-credit scenes. So you, I would look up on my phone in the theater and go like, all right, do I have to stay for this or not? You know, and they would give this like just one minute little like sneak peek at the next movie. And that's what Kings and Chronicles do. They end in just utter despair, but then there's a post-credit scene for both of them. In Kings, you find out, you zoom in, and you find out that Jehoiachin, a Davidic heir, is actually being provided for in Babylon. And you're like, there's still hope. There's a Davidic heir still alive. The promise of the seed of David can still go on. In Chronicles, it's the focus on the temple and as a symbol of God's relationship with Israel, and the temple's been destroyed. But at the end, in the post-credits, if you stay till the end, you find out that Cyrus, a pagan king, issues a decree for Israel to return to their land and rebuild the temple. And so God is saying, hey, I still love you. We still have a plan. Don't despair. Hope in what God is doing. And so there is even hope in this captivity. And yet, this is a very important concept to get. This concept of exile becomes very important from Scripture here on out. And nearly all the prophets speak of a restoration of Israel after the time of exile, that they will be restored to the land and that they will never be dispersed again from it. But the question is, when will this happen? Has this happened? Was the return under Ezra and Nehemiah the fulfillment of that? And the answer, short answer is no, it wasn't. It was kind of a pitiful return. And, and the, the old people are like mourning when they rebuild the temple. They're like, man, this is nothing like Solomon's temple. The, the, the presence of God does not return to the temple. It left in Ezekiel. Um, and it's vital to understand that Israel's exile has never ended, biblically speaking. Theologically speaking, Israel is still in exile. If you go, what time is it? Well, it, it, you could answer that in a lot of ways. But it's the time of exile. This is why Peter, in 1 Peter 5.13, he ends his letter by saying, he was in ba- she was in Babylon, greets you. Now, Peter's in Rome, most likely. But he's, he, what is he saying? He's saying, it's like we're in Babylon. What would that mean? It's like we're still in exile. And he begins his letter by saying, I'm writing to the, you as sojourners and exiles, to those who are dispersed, right? So he's speaking in exile language. He, he understands theologically we are still in the, in the stage of exile. And so to get out of exile then, think about this almost like a game, like a board game, right? How do you get out of exile? You have to have an exodus, right? Israel had an exodus in the beginning. The Bible portrays that they're gonna have a second exodus, a new exodus that's gonna totally outshadow that first exodus, overshadow. And so that's how you get out of exile. Now, that has not yet happened yet. Why? Why hasn't it happened? I thought Jesus came, how, how did the exodus, how, how are they not out of exile yet? And this leads us to the next point, the Christ of Israel. The Christ of Israel. The Christ of Israel. Of course, Christ means Messiah. 
And the Old Testament is full of promises of the coming seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And this one will be the prophet like Moses. He will be the priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he will be the king who is the new and ultimate David. He is the word of God. He is the angel of Yahweh. He is the branch. He is the shepherd of Israel. He's the servant of Yahweh. And he's the virgin conceived child. In Isaiah chapter 7, it's where our church gets its namesake, Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 7, we studied this passage before, just by way of reminder. And there's this prophecy that's given. Isaiah 7, verse 14. And we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, speaking to Ahab, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is the promise. Here is this one who is going to come. He's going to be virgin conceived. But notice when he will be born. Notice when he will be born. Verse 15. He shall eat curds and honey. When he, uh, and when, the when is probably better in order that. Uh, he will eat curds and honey in order that he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. And you think, curds and honey, that sounds pretty nice. Like, that sounds like a good breakfast to me, you know? Uh, <laughs> but that is not the, the, the diet of royalty. That's the diet of exile, That's the diet of exile. Look, just in verse 21 and 22, same chapter. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds. For everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. This is exile language. He's saying, here's when this virgin conceived child will be born. During the time of exile. Now you have to remember, exile becomes a theological category. So he's saying this child is going to be born in the, in the time of exile. And why would he be born in the time of exile? Because this virgin conceived child who is the Davidic heir is born into exile to break the exile, to bring Israel out of exile. And so that is the point. Chapter 9 of Isaiah, it's interesting, in the beginning of that chapter, it says in verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are northern tribes in Israel. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So what he's, what he's getting at is, When Israel goes into exile, some of the first places to get taken in exile are in the north because the enemy attacks from the north. And so these get taken first, these tribes. And so what he's saying is you're in darkness, but guess what is going to happen? You get the light first. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And this is speaking of Jesus' ministry, if we read on, uh, and how... What is, where does Jesus begin his ministry? In Galilee. He ministers primarily in the north. And it's like saying, hey, the first of you to be taken into exile, you're the first to get the ministry of the one who breaks the exile. And so he's doing all this ministry in Galilee. That's why he does it in the north. Nothing is random in the gospels. And so he's just ministering up there. And of course, he describes some of the things that Jesus will bring in his second coming. But notice, jump down to verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David 
and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. So here's ultimately what this one will do. He will end exile because he will be the king who will rule from David's throne. And so this is the Christ of Israel. Yet even in the Old Testament, it's clear that the Messiah would not only rule and reign over Israel and the ends of the earth, Psalm 72, that becomes a big theme, but he must also suffer and die and rise again. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, both speak of this reality of the suffering servant, this one who will bear the sins of his people, not only Jews, but also Gentiles, we learn. He will sprinkle many nations, Isaiah says, but he will be rejected by the people. We study Isaiah 53. Um, they, they esteemed him not. Uh, they considered him stricken, smitten of God. They thought he was being judged for his own sins. And of course, we, when we study that, we, we recognize that what Isaiah is doing is he's describing a future generation of Jews who are reflecting back on the death of Messiah and their forebears who rejected him and saying, we had it wrong. We misjudged the Messiah. And now they're finally coming to realize it, that he was the one who died for our sins. He is the one who came to redeem Israel. And now they're embracing the Messiah. And that's the perspective of Isaiah 53. He's the suffering servant who redeemed and restore Israel and the world. What was harder to grasp, though, from the Old Testament was that the Messiah would come two times. First, to offer the kingdom to Israel to be rejected, suffer, die, and rise. And second, from our perspective, with greater clarity, from hindsight, look, uh, to return, to regenerate, restore Israel, and reign over the nations. And you get a glimpse of this, and if you go to Acts, we're jumping ahead in our, in our storyline here, but this is like a little sneak peek. Uh, Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching shortly after the day of Pentecost, and Acts 3, verse 17, Peter helps us to understand this first, second coming dynamic. And how the prophets prophesy both of these and how it's becoming clearer. And he wants Israel to respond rightly to her Messiah who has come. Accomplish salvation. So verse 17 of Acts chapter 3. He says, And now, brothers, speaking to his fellow Jews primarily, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. So we could call this present first century fulfillment, first coming fulfillment, right? He's saying the prophets predicted these things, and guess what? It happened. The Messiah came, he died. This is what was predicted. Then, verse 19, repent therefore. So in light of this, in light of the, what Jesus has come and he's accomplished, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Once again, he's saying the prophets spoke about these things. What, what is he talking about? Well, he's saying they prophesied about a restoration, a restoration of Israel, a restoration of the animal kingdom, of the creation, all these things together. And he's saying, hey, first coming fulfillment, Jesus has come. He's died. You need to repent now. And if you do, and if you get right with him and you receive your Messiah, guess what happens? Jesus returns again. 
and he establishes the restoration of all things. This is what the disciples are asking Jesus in chapter one, verse six. Same word for, for restoring. Is it at this time you're gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? And now Peter's saying, hey, this is gonna happen in the future, but you have to repent. And then notice what he says, verse 22. He, he goes on. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from his, your wickedness. So Peter's in essence saying, I get it. It's clear. Throughout the Old Testament, I mean, it, I think I could have just spent the whole morning reading passages that say Israel is going to repent in the end, in the Old Testament alone, and we would just spend our whole time there. Peter gets that, and so he says, hey, for Messiah to return and for you to get all these blessings, you have to be rightly related to the king. He's come already. He's accomplished salvation. You need to respond. That's what he's doing. That's what he's calling them to, and he's saying the prophets predicted this, but it's clear now that some of these things are located in the bucket we might call of the first coming, and some of these await fulfillment in the second coming. And so this is the Christ of Israel. It's become clearer now. So when Jesus came, he proved to be all that the Old Testament predicted. Yet despite overwhelming signs and evidence of who Jesus was, Israel rejected her Messiah. And this drove them deeper into the state of exile. Rather than getting them out of exile, it drove them deeper into it. And so listen to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Jesus, as he approaches Jerusalem, or he stands before Jerusalem and looks upon it. Here's what he laments. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. And he's talking about the temple. It's gonna be destroyed in 70 AD. He says, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, notice that you, we pointed out in Deuteronomy that Moses speaks of Israel just in generic you, kind of this transgenerational you, just speaks of Israel in general. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Psalm 118. It's, the, it's Israel receiving their Messiah and saying, we acknowledge you as king. What Jesus is saying here, though they said this when he came into Jerusalem, uh, some people did, he's saying, your temple is going down. You did not receive me. You won't see me again until, which implies they will see him again. But what is the condition? It is you have to embrace him as king. You have to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's exactly what Peter just said, or Peter will say, Luke is, or this is Matthew. Luke, Peter's saying, repent so that he will send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. And Jesus is saying, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So you need to repent. You need to be right with the Messiah. That's the idea. Uh, Luke says something very similar. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. About the rejection. He says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade round you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And here's predicting again 70 AD, saying the temple's coming down. You didn't realize the time of visitation. And so this is the Christ of Israel. And so rather than getting them out of exile, they're driven deeper into exile. But this doesn't cancel the promise of a, of a new exodus to bring them out. It just delays it, if you will. And so now we have the church in Israel. The church and Israel. Notice I say the church and Israel, okay? After the resurrection of Jesus, he meets with his disciples for 40 days, instructing them on the kingdom of God. That's the subject. I'll prove it to you. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Sometimes you take intensives in college, intensive courses, and they're shorter than usual. You know, they don't have the whole semester, but they're a couple weeks long. This is an intensive class. And the class is the theology of the kingdom of God. And it's taught by your professor, Jesus. <laughs> and, and so uh, it, I, I laugh when people... Uh, walk away from this and they go, yep, to the disciples, they still don't get it. They're still asking about the restoration of Israel and they're so wrong. And I go, wait a minute. Jesus is instructing them post-resurrection for 40 days about the kingdom. And, and, and so they ask the question then in verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And you'll hear this from commentators and, and preachers sometimes. It's like, oh, they, they're so thick-headed. They still don't get it that this is not happening anymore. But I say, wait a minute, Jesus just taught them for 40 days and they ask a question that I think is legitimate because they're going, okay, this is the expectation of the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't cancel that expectation. And so they're going like, okay, well, we don't get the timing of all this, but is it, is it now, Lord? And here's what Jesus says. He said to them, verse seven, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. Now, does he any, in any way say, you fools, like that's not happening. Like he just says, it's not for you to know the times. It's like, don't worry about that, guys. So I think he's saying, hey, that's happening, but don't worry about it right now. Here's what you need to worry about. Verse eight, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so this is the role of the church right now is to proclaim and to be witnesses to what Christ has done, his person and, a work, and, and work. Jesus does not disabuse the disciples of the expectation of a restoration of Israel. He just simply says, hey, don't worry about that right now. And then Peter will preach and say, hey, the, for the, you need to repent so that the Messiah returns and he might bring the restoration of all things in chapter three. So Peter gets it. He reaffirms that Old Testament expectation. Church is established on the day of Pentecost, chapter two. Church is made up of Jews and Gentiles who have placed their trust in the name of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior and Lord. And the church is a, has a witnessing role to the nations. Church, in many ways, serves as Israel's substitute teacher, <laughs> uh, the substitute teacher for Israel. This is why the church functions in similar ways that Israel was to function, as well as have certain titles that Israel had applied to her, and because they function in a similar way in this age. But the church is not a replacement of Israel or a fulfillment of Israel, but the church is something new. It, Paul calls it a mystery. It was something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, but has now been made known. And so Israel has, still has theological significance and a role to play in the future. 
But right now, the focus is upon what God is doing among Jews and Gentiles, saved Jews and Gentiles within the church, the body of the church. Paul, Paul describes how God has seen fit to bring in Gentiles predominantly in this age while Israel is broken off. But there is hope that Israel will be regrafted into this olive tree, which likely refers to the Abrahamic promises. And I'm just going to skip this for, for time's sake, but if you read Romans 11, uh, uh, 13 to the end of uh, to verse 24, he gives this illustration in essence and says, hey, you Gentiles who have been included into these promises uh, that God has, has included you in in the church, don't you become arrogant because God broke off Israel for their unbelief, for their rejection, and he grafted you in. And he's like, if you're grafting a, a, a wild olive shoot in, um, you should be humble that God has included you in the promises. Don't be arrogant against those who have been broken off because God is able to regraft them back in. And he, in essence, is saying, hey, listen, God has a purpose in all this. And he can just as easily regraft Israel as a whole back into these Abrahamic promises again. And so that's his logic there. And so God is not done. God is not done with them. And we not be arrogant and, um, and think that way. I think the challenge, this is a footnote, is that for most of church history, like Israel was not a nation. They were like gone. I mean, th- so if you, if you read these passages that Paul's talking about in the Old Testament and you're like, in some ways you can understand why some people are like, yeah, Israel has no significance whatsoever theologically. Because they look out the world and they go, like they're nowhere. They're, I mean, they're, they're, they're not a nation. How can any of these things happen? And then 1948 happened. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, maybe these things can happen. Uh, and so what we see here is Paul is describing the future restoration of these people yet again. And so this leads us then to our next point, the current state of Israel, the current state of Israel. And uh, Romans 11, Paul continues to help us understand where they stand today and since, really, uh, the first century. In Romans 11, verse 25, Paul says this, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards the election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Verse 25, verse 28 especially are key summaries of the current state of Israel. According to Paul, they're currently, by and large, unbelieving. Not receiving their Messiah. That's what we mean by unbelieving. That they haven't received Jesus as Messiah. He says there's a partial hardening placed upon them. When he says partial, he means it's partial because Paul's a Jew, right? And he's a believer. And Peter's a Jew. And he's a believer. And there's many others who we know who have come to faith in Christ. But that's the exception rather than the rule. And notice what he says in verse 28, that there's this kind of dual dynamic. They are enemies of the gospel. And then he says, for your sake, the Gentiles, because the, the gospel has now come to us. But they're beloved. They're loved according to election because God has chosen them to bring about these promises. And so there's this dual reality. Presently, they are enemies of the gospel because they don't embrace Christ, but they are elect because of God's promises to them. There's this dynamic. Paul's maintaining that. 
Yes, there are some who are saved, but it's the exception. And Paul uses himself as an example of that in Romans 11.1. 1. In Luke 21, Luke 21, this is a helpful passage. Uh, we get some more clarity here. In, in verse 20, Jesus again predicts this destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and he says, verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so this is the history of Jerusalem, right? Why is Jerusalem such a contested city? Here's why, right? Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until, so you say, what time is it? Well, what is today? October 15th, 2023. But it's also the time of the Gentiles, right? That's the era in which we live. We're also in the time of exiles. There's a lot of ways to answer this question. And so this is the current state of Israel. What does this mean then for our outlook on the current state as Christians? Well, this is our next point, the compassion for Israel, the compassion for Israel. Now, sometimes people think about Israel, Christians, I mean, and, and they say, well, I mean, I'm not Israel. <laughs> so why is this important to me or relevant to me? I mean, why study these passages? Why study, why care about any of this? And I would just suggest to you that's a very selfish way to read the Bible. <laughs> uh, do you ever receive an invitation to a wedding and you go, I'm not going there. I'm not going to that. It's not my wedding. I'm not getting married. <laughs> I'm not going to that thing. It's not about me. <laughs> no, you don't do that. Uh, and I think we should be careful. We don't think like, well, pfft, I mean, this is not related to me personally on Monday. And so I don't care about this. And, and, and I'm not saying that's your mentality, but I'm saying I've heard that mentality before. It's like, well, pfft, why, why spend time on this? Because the Bible does. And because this is part of the story and you have to understand, like we said, theology comes to us via a context. And this is the context that comes to us in. It should concern us because it's part of God's plan. Now, how should we think about Israel and the Jews right now? Well, I think we should take our cues once again from the Apostle Paul. If you look at chapter 9 of Romans, chapter 9, verse 1, 9, 1 to 3, here's what Paul says. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul's broken over these people. He's broken that they're not believers. And then chapter 10, verse one, he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so we see Paul's great burden for them. He wants to see them, desperately wants to see them embrace Christ and be saved. 
And we can also join with Jesus' lament over Israel's current belief, which we read about. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Or when he, he wept over the city as he saw their unbelief. This can be our attitude as well as we pray for the gospel to reach them. We can also join the psalmist as we read in our opening scripture reading in Psalm 122.6 by praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And of course, there's a valid application of that right now that we would pray for uh, peace there and justice and righteousness. But also, as Christians who understand the Bible, we understand how that peace actually happens in the end. That it requires Messiah Jesus putting his feet on the Mount of Olives and ruling to establish this ultimate peace in Jerusalem as he makes Jerusalem the capital city of the new creation. We understand how this all comes about. So it would behoove us to pray according to scripture and how it portrays the future and pray toward that end, that that would be the ultimate peace and that there would be reconciliation for these people to God. And that's how we know it happens. He is the prince of peace who will cause everyone to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Yet there's another response I think we can have, and it's compassionate lament with Israel right now. There's an entire book of the Old Testament where Jeremiah weeps over and laments for the destruction of Jerusalem. And it follows after he predicted it and said this is going to happen. And yet it doesn't change the fact that this is greatly sorrowful to him. And it's the book of Lamentations. It has a future hope looking to the Messiah in that book, but also he's lamenting the death and destruction of Jerusalem and its people. And so we can lament and ought to over the atrocities committed against Israel uh, by Hamas in these recent days and against their, their own people. They claim to um, be the government over wickedness, how they treat their citizens. How else can we think about the depravity and appalling images many of us have seen in this last week? Habakkuk is another book that would help us Habakkuk had consternation over the wickedness of the Assyrians against Israel in the north. How could God not punish their wicked acts? And Habakkuk learns through that interaction with God that God will in fact punish Assyria and Judah, but it would be through another wicked nation, Babylon. And it, it, it makes Habakkuk concerned because how, how can God use another wicked nation, maybe a worse wicked nation, to punish another wicked nation? And we see the mystery of God's ways as he sovereignly wields all nations for his purposes. But the key theme of the book of Habakkuk is this verse, the righteous shall live by his faith. And yet the message is you have to trust God. You have to trust God in this. As believers, we know God has plans and those include Israel and so we pray for them. But what is next in God's timetable for Israel? What is next? We know Israel will not be destroyed ultimately because of God's plans for her. But what does happen next? Well, we don't know how this particular war plays into that. And, and you know, you all, you'll hear just, there'll be tons of YouTube videos that will be like, how Hamas fulfills biblical prophecy. And I just don't think you can say that. I don't think we, we can think of harbingers to future events and how things get set up for how the things will play out. But we can't know with certainty how this event plays out and fits into that thing, that timetable. Um, but it certainly fits into our worldview on these things. But what do we know about the ultimate big picture? What comes next? And this leads us to our next point, the catastrophe of Israel. The catastrophe of Israel. The next major event in history, according to scripture, is known as the day of the Lord. 
the day of the Lord. It is not a particular day, 24-hour day, but really a season of God's judgment followed by deliverance for his people. The day of the Lord is also known by other titles. It's known as Daniel's 70th week. It's also known as the time of Jacob's trouble, according to Jeremiah 30, verses 1 to 9. Notice Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble. It's also known as the tribulation. That's what Moses said in, early in Deuteronomy 4, when you were in tribulation. It is a seven-year period, according to Daniel, in which Jesus Christ brings, begins to take back planet Earth and rule on David's throne, according to Revelation 5. This day of the Lord is described in Revelation 6 to 19. In these events, Matthew 24 it breaks these the seven years into two halves, and he describes what takes place in the first half, the first three and a half years, then he describes what happens in the second three and a half years. We believe and teach here that just prior to the day of the Lord, uh, that the church, those who are made up of believers in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, between the day of Pentecost and what we call the rapture event, will be taken, caught up to meet the Lord in the air and be gathered to him in heaven while the tribulation takes place on earth for these seven years. It's almost like in a football game, you have the kickoff, and the kickoff to the day of the Lord is very much closely related to the beginning of the, uh, or, or, of the rapture. So you have this event that takes place, which is a signless event. It can happen at any moment. This is why we speak of the imminent return of Christ. Christ could return at any moment for his church. And that would then kick off the events of the day of the Lord. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 speaks about this man of lawlessness and the actions he will do. But even prior to that, Daniel sets up for the same figure who in uh, Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 will make a covenant with Israel for a week, which is really, if you do the do the math, do the prophecy, you have seven years. He's going to make a covenant with Israel for seven years, and in the middle of that, he will break that covenant at three and a half years. Uh, Daniel calls that the abomination of desolation. And Paul picks up on that and says, this is when the, this figure uh, puts himself in the temple of God and, and proclaims himself as God. And then, really, you have uh, this, this peace treaty, so to speak, with Israel for three and a half years, and then he turns on them and just utter persecution of them to wipe them out for the second half. That's really the, the picture you have. And, of course, we read already in Deuteronomy 4, setting up for this tribulation, Jeremiah 30, verses 1 to 9 speak about that period. Um, Daniel, chapter 12, speak about this period in Israel's history, a uh, time like no other. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Like we said, Jesus describes this in Matthew 24. He says in Matthew 24, 21, this is a time like no other. And so really you have, if you think about it, you have this, the, the, the taking up of the church. Very shortly thereafter, you have this treaty signed with this, whoever this individual uh, ends up being with Israel to kick off that time. Paul actually encourages the Thessalonian believers to say, hey, you're not in the day of the Lord right now because you know that there's some events that take place within the day of the Lord that have not taken place. This treaty hasn't happened. And also, the, the, the man of lawlessness has not uh, taken his seat in the temple of God. And so he assures them that that's not happened yet because they were expecting the rapture according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
This leader goes by many names in scripture, just like Jesus goes by many names. He's known as the little horn. He's known as the beast. He's known as the man of lawlessness. He's known as the prince. He's known as the false shepherd. And he's known as the antichrist. And he will severely persecute Israel during this latter half. Sometimes it's called the great tribulation. That's the second half because it's just an intensification of that time. It'd be all bad, all the wrath of God, but especially culminating in that. It really culminates in the nations all gathering together against Israel to fight against Israel. And you see this in Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. And we are on our descent, folks, you know, to land the plane, so don't worry here. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. It says, Behold, a day is coming for, the, for Yahweh when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile. But the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And so there's this gathering of the entire, all the nations against Israel for this final battle. And then you have after the catastrophe of Israel, which is really God's refining of Israel to prepare them to be converted. You have the, fin- the conversion of Israel, the conversion of Israel. It's, it's at this climactic moment. And of course, throughout you have uh, many Jews getting saved, but at the final climactic moment of history, at the end of this seven years, the Messiah returns, but not before regenerating his people and saving Israel, first spiritually and then physically by delivering them. There's just so many passages overwhelming on this subject. Hosea. Hosea chapter chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3, verse 4. Here's the present state of Israel. It says, for the ch- verse 4, chapter 3, verse 4, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince. Does Israel have a king? Do they have a prince? No. Without sacrifice or pillar. Well, you have to have a temple for that. They don't. Without ephod or household gods. But afterwards, verse five, the children of Israel shall return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to Yahweh and to his goodness in the latter days. That's what Deuteronomy said. In the latter days, they shall return. Zechariah beautifully pictures this. When they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Zechariah 12 and 13 really describe this salvation as all these nations are coming against Israel and God begins to confuse these nations and confuse their, their weaponry. And then in verse six of chapter 12, Zechariah says, on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of, the, of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves and they shall de- uh, devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And Yahweh will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, and that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. And then he just walks through each of the tribes. He says, the individuals will get saved, and then the tribes will get saved themselves. Verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Verse 1 of chapter 13, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And while these nations come around Jerusalem, 
Verse 3 of chapter 14, then Yahweh will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half in the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southwards. And so Jesus gloriously returns. In fact, the lights go out on all of creation. Just like they went out at the crucifixion, the lights go out in creation and then a blazing light of Messiah returning comes and he delivers his people, regenerates them, restores them, defeats his enemies and Israel runs. They don't run away from Messiah. They run to Messiah to embrace him as their king. And of course, the church is returning with Christ. Revelation 19 portrays this and the church returns and Christ sets up his kingdom and this is our final point, the consummation of Israel, the consummation of Israel. God then brings Israel back and he brings it back to the land. This is the new Exodus and he says, even in the prophets, that you're not even gonna remember or talk about the first Exodus because this one will be even greater. There you were brought out of one nation, Egypt, now you'll be brought out of all of the nations and, and you will speak about this new Exodus that will take place and it says, the Gentiles will pick up Jews on their shoulders and they'll carry them to Israel enjoy because they've been restored. And this will not only lead to restoration of Israel as a nation, but other nations will have a role to play in the future kingdom. They will be called my people, just like Israel is called my people. Assyria and Egypt will be the people of God together, ruling with Christ from the capital city in Jerusalem. And here's what we read in Amos chapter nine. It's not only that, it's all of the world. Amos chapter nine, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares Yahweh who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says Yahweh, your God. Despite every, so many nations trying to snuff Israel out, God has protected them. And though this great calamity will come upon the earth to judge the nations and to refine Israel, he will by no means forget them, but will restore them in the end. He will preserve them. And this is a testimony to God's faithfulness to his word. It is a testimony to the truthfulness of scripture. And it is an encouragement to us that he will keep his promises to us as well. God keeps his promises. But for them to receive their promises, they must rightly be related to their king. They must repent, seek Yahweh, and David, her king. The message over Israel is the same message for you and I. We too must repent. It is appointed for man to die once and after that the judgment. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So we must repent. We must receive the Messiah. He is our only hope. He is the only hope for world peace. He's the hope for Jews. He's the hope for Gentiles. And he will bring it all to pass. So we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this just extended look we've been able to have at Israel. And no doubt, you know we've left so much out, but... Lord, I pray that you would give us just great confidence that you have written a story that is comprehensive, that you forget nothing. Things we've forgotten, you remember, and you bring them all to pass. Lord, I pray you'd give us confidence, you give us hope. Lord, we pray for Israel that they would turn to you, they would repent, they would embrace the Messiah as we have been brought to know him. 
We want them to know him as well. We do pray for just in this present situation that justice and righteousness would prevail, that you would hinder terrorists from further activities, that you would give wisdom as Israel and other nations who are helping them to navigate the just uh, defense of their nation in this time. We also just, Lord, thank you for this perspective you give us in your word and we, we pray that we would have hope as we look to the future and we anticipate the return of Christ and we love him Lord we thank you for your plan in Jesus name amen